what we're going to talk about today uh, is the decade of the 1960s. And I think that for better or for worse, and we'll debate that on Wednesday, the 1960s made us what we are today. They defined us. That's why I call the 1960s the decade that defined us. And historians will be debating the legacy of this very tumultuous decade uh, for many years to come. And one of the many reasons that I wish I could live another 100 years would be to find out what historians will be saying about the 1960s in, uh, let's say, say uh, uh, the year uh, uh, 2108. And obviously, none of us are going to be uh, around then. But I have a pretty good idea of what historians will be saying 100 years from now about the 1960s. They'll say that the 1960s were, above all, about change. Political change, social change, economic change, and perhaps, most importantly, cultural change. And that's what we're mostly going to be talking about today. Changes in the way Americans uh, looked at themselves and looked at each other. Historians will say that Americans were never the same after the 1960s, that America was never the same after the 1960s, that the decade was a watershed, a dividing line, uh, from which there could be uh, no retreat, no going back. And in many ways, Americans today, almost now going on 40 years uh, 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 after the, uh, uh, the decade ended, actually 50 years, no, 40 years, See, now you can see why I'm a historian and not a math major. 1970, 38 years, let's say, after the uh, decade, uh, decade ended. Uh, uh, Americans are still recovering from the 1960s, still dealing with its fallout, almost in the way you would uh, deal with the long, long-term effects of a, of a meteor explosion, still scattering fragments over the landscape years and years later. And... It's almost like the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, and even the first years of the 21st century are the anticlimax to the 1960s, the collective second act, so to speak, in which the dramatic narrative established in the first act, the 1960s, simply plays out. But while historians will agree that the 1960s changed America irrevocably, they will in all likelihood disagree over how it changed America, what those changes uh, meant for America, and perhaps most importantly, whether those changes were good or bad for America. And again, we'll, we'll debate that on Wednesday. Now, as to this last question, whether the 1960s were good or bad for America, we can see the battle lines forming already in this generation of historians, my generation of historians, the first group of historians to uh, evaluate the 1960s critically. And it's very exciting to be in that first group of historians because uh, it's almost as if uh, 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 the analogy would be Historians of the Civil War, the first group of historians who evaluated the Civil War uh, historically, they came along in the 1890s in the early part of the, uh, of the 20th century, uh, knowing that they were just the first pass, that there would be many more generations of historians who would evaluate the Civil War, and obviously that's the case. Well, the same thing with the 1960s. Uh, when I did my dissertation in the 1990s on an event in the 1960s, it was really exciting because uh, it was basically the first crack 
crack at it. Uh, 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 and there obviously will be many, many more generations of historians who will follow mine uh, and evaluate the 1960s. But it's sort of interesting to be first. And my generation of historians today are engaged in heated and sometimes vicious arguments as to what the 1960s were about uh, and whether America benefited from the 1960s. Now, some historians, especially some historians on the left, uh, uh, and uh, as I think I said before, most historians are on the left, uh, view the 1960s as a decade in which a great many walls came down, walls that had impeded personal freedom and individual self-realization, and perhaps, most of all, impeded societal justice, a fair society. These historians see the 1960s, even with all their dislocation, even with all their violence, as a necessary phase in American history, one that America required if it was to break down the walls of arbitrary authority that had developed around the government, around the workplace, the school, the family, all the institutions of American life. The 1960s, these historians argue, made it possible at last for individual Americans to make their own decisions about how they would live their own lives. No longer would they have vested authorities, uh, uh, higher-ups, making those uh, judgments for them. They could make them on their own. For these historians, these more positive historians then, the 1960s were a 20th century version of the Enlightenment of the 18th century, 1700s, and really its culmination. Now, for those of you who have not taken the relevant European history courses, uh, uh, the Enlightenment, in a nutshell, and I hope my colleague Paul Cohen will forgive me here, he knows a lot more about the Enlightenment than I do, uh, the Enlightenment celebrated man as an individual, free from the restraints of the church or inherited nobility or kings, making man uh, capable of making his own decisions about his political life. Now, this, of course, is what the American Revolution was about, and at least until it veered out of control and into the reign of terror, what the French Revolution uh, was about, political democracy. Now, the Enlightenment was also about man making his own decisions about his personal life. And it's especially in this area that historians who are sympathetic to the 1960s view uh, the 1960s as representing the culmination of the Enlightenment, the completion of the work that the Enlightenment started in the 1700s. The 1960s, then, just like the Enlightenment, were about man and not about God, about man's supreme in his own world and on his own, in a brave new world of his own making. Man, for these historians, thanks to this enlightenment uh, and uh, its culmination, the 1960s, was now, in a sense, his own god. But, for more conservative historians, in a minority but still existing, for them, analyzing the 1960s today, man being his own god, was exactly the problem with the 1960s. For critics of the 1960s, that decade represented everything that was wrong with the United States as we look at it today. Yes, these historians agree the 1960s uh, uh, was a 20th century version of the Enlightenment, but in their view, 
the 1960s did much more harm than good. More conservative historians decry the violence and uh, the dislocation of the decade, which was not necessary, as historians sympathetic to the 1960s argue, but mindless and anarchic and needlessly destructive. In this regard, more conservative historians compare the 1960s not to the American Revolution, but to the reign of terror of the French Revolution. Really, the world's first taste of totalitarianism, where people lost their lives in 1793, 1794, uh, uh, 1795 in France, uh, simply for disagreeing with the regime, for speaking out on behalf of order. Critics of the 1960s analogize from the reign of terror of the French Revolution to the 1960s and point to numerous instances of conservatives or even moderates or even liberals being shouted down on college campuses uh, uh, or in black communities or elsewhere. Uh, they cite these examples as examples of the 60s resemblance to the dark side of the Enlightenment a modern version of the French reign of terror, of course, without the guillotine. Now, critics of the 1960s also decry and mourn what its defenders celebrate, the freeing of man from authority. For the critics of the 1960s, the 1960s destroyed all authority, much of it necessary authority, and, just as important, a sense of overriding moral authority, a sense of right and wrong, that came from above, from your parents, from government, and most importantly, perhaps, from God. The 1960s, these conservative critics argue, by making man into his own God, so to speak, left him bereft of any strong or traditional moral guidelines on how to behave. Because that's, in a sense, what moral guidelines do. They tell you how to act. The 1960s uh, removal of these moral guidelines left man on his own, so to speak. And the result of the overthrow of these, uh, this moral authority, of uh, this unleashing of man's... Uh, and when I say man, I, in, this, in the sense I mean, uh, in the broadest sense, I mean men and women when I say man here. Man's power of individual uh, moral choice... Uh, uh, this unleashing of this was, in the view of the critics of the 1960s, uh, the destruction of timeless moral standards altogether and their replacement with a self-indulgent, self-rationalizing personal code of moral relativism in which the absence of any fixed moral standards left man free to make them up and thus excuse lying, selfishness, irresponsibility, by pointing to the very absence of ethical standards that the 1960s created. The 1960s, its critics charge, uh, introduced, if it feels good, do it, or if it suits my purposes, do it, uh, into the national culture, in their view, to its everlasting shame. The 1960s popularized, in their view, these more conservative critics, the idea that one choice is as good as any other choice morally, and that any judgments in, these, in this regard are attempts to impose your morality on other people. And finally, these critics of the 1960s uh, uh, charge that the 1960s have given us a society with no restraints on personal behavior whatsoever, a violent, selfish, and dishonest society with, 
in the 90s, the president it richly deserved. And as I've been going through the two basic historical interpretations of the 1960s, I imagine that, at least for some of you, the image of Bill Clinton has been in the back of your minds. At least I hope it has been, because that was my intention. Because more than any other public figure today, and even today, even though he's not running for president, Bill Clinton symbolizes the 1960s historically, both sides of them. And he embodies the contradictions of the 1960s almost perfectly. The concern with justice and social justice, breaking down barriers uh, to human freedom and self-realization on the one hand, along with the weak moral compass, the self-indulgence, the situational ethics uh, as well. The things that, of course, made Kenneth Starr, the great critic of the 1960s, who I've referred to before, uh, pursue Clinton with such single-mindedness during the impeachment crisis. And our difficulty in evaluating Bill Clinton today, he is so many things at the same time, is symbolic of our difficulty in evaluating the 1960s uh, that he embodied historically. But, of course, as historians, our job is to try to do this, as difficult as it is, and that's what I'll be trying to do over this and the next three lectures. Uh, my allocation of four lectures to the 1960s is, of course, uh, a testament to uh, its importance, to their importance in my eyes, uh, as well as a testament to the difficulties that they present to historians who may be too close to them chronologically and emotionally to judge them accurately. In any case, uh, I will be talking about uh, the civil rights movement in two of our future lectures, uh, uh, one scheduled for Friday and then next Monday, uh, uh, and then I'll talk about Vietnam uh, in the other one uh, next Wednesday. But today, I want to continue to give you a general overview of this contradictory, historically disputed, yet defining decade of the 1960s, and the place to start, uh, just as we did with the 1950s, is with culture. Now, the 60s culturally represented the triumph of some of the aspects of the youth and the beat cultures that we spoke about in connection with the 1950s in our last lecture, along with some added elements. Now, this of course, does not mean that the mainstream culture of the 1950s, what I call the man in the gray flannel suit culture, uh, that this kind of culture went away, or uh, even went underground. Many people assume that uh, what became known as the counterculture in the 1960s, and I'll be talking about uh, that, uh, was the entire culture of the 1960s, and that everyone accepted it. But that is emphatically not the case. The straight or conformist or straight and narrow culture of the 1950s existed in the 1960s and afterwards, as we'll uh, see when we speak of the silent majority that made Richard Nixon president in 1968, the height of the 60s, uh, and Ronald Reagan president in 1980. And in fact, when you see street scenes, photographs of street scenes in the 1960s, at least when I do, I'm always struck by the large numbers of people in these photographs dressed very conservatively. Men in suits and ties, women in respectable dresses. Now, you don't think of these people to, as belonging to the 1960s, but of course they did, and there were 
millions of them, as a series of Democratic presidential candidates found out the hard way after 1964. But although the straight conformist people, straight conformist culture, uh, also belong to the 60s, they're not going to be my primary focus today. Because if we measure history in terms of change, and of course we do, then it was the new alternative culture of the 1960s, the counterculture that grew out of the youth and the beat cultures of the 1950s, that provided that change. The counterculture, and not the mainstream culture, was the instrument, the engine of change, uh, and it made the history. And so it is with this new culture of the 1960s that I'll concern myself uh, uh, today. So what did this new culture of the 1960s consist of? Well, with some overlap, I think it can be broken down into eight elements. And if you look at your outline, you'll see those eight elements listed. Now, first and most importantly is a questioning of authority. This new culture involved a questioning of authority. In the 1960s, all authority figures and institutions were challenged in a most basic way. Parents were challenged in the family structure, the term generation gap was coined during this uh, time. Uh, the concept of the family uh, itself came under attack during the 1960s as men and women began to live together without being married. As laws were passed making it much easier to dissolve marriages. And as new forms of family living became the subject of experimentation. The hippie commune, for example, uh, where everyone was considered part of an extended family. The authority of teachers and administrators were challenged, most notably uh, by students at universities who were protesting the war in Vietnam, and also in less overtly political ways by students challenging school dress codes, and speech codes, and restrictions on contact between students of the opposite sex. And, of course, the 1960s were a decade in which government authority was challenged directly by the refusal of the young to register for the draft, by their sometimes violent protests against the Vietnam War, and by the formation of a new kind of politics altogether, what was known as the New Left, a loose group of young activists that rejected conventional po political parties, rejected both the Democrats and the Republicans, and instead sought what they called a new politics based on a redistribution of power away from authority figures, away from elites, presidents and senators and generals, and towards the people. Although the new left leaders themselves uh, 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 sometimes left a large segment of the American population, the men and women in the gray flannel suits, the conformist uh, generation uh, that I talked of a bit earlier, left them out of their definition of the people. Now, government authority, moreover, was challenged during the 1960s in many indirect ways uh, by, for example, a decreasing amount of respect for the police who in many circles, in urban ghettos to be sure, but also on college campuses and among young people in general, were now regarded as an invading army, as the pigs, as they were so inelegantly nicknamed during the 1960s. In addition, 
the upsurge in crime that characterized the 1960s. Uh, rates of violent crime tripled and sometimes quadrupled in certain areas uh, uh, during the decade. Uh, yet another example of this challenge to authority. And to show that this challenge to authority was not limited solely to the young, I think it's fair to say that all segments of the American population showed a significant decline in the level of trust that they had in their elected leaders during the 1960s because of uh, examples of government lying or perceived government lying involving the 1963 assassination of JFK, which most Americans, young and old, believed was the result of a conspiracy, despite the lone gunman theory of the Warren Commission, uh, as well as the, an example of the Vietnam War itself, in which, uh, according to the government, the end was in sight, uh, even as the war ground on and on and chewed up more and more American lives. Uh, because of these examples of perceived government lying or exaggeration, uh, 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 Americans of all ages began to question the truthfulness of what their leaders were telling them in a challenge to authority that may have had the greatest long-term effect for American society at large because it affected virtually everyone, not just the young. Uh, uh, and the one, I think, certainly that had the most uh, impact on electoral politics in the United States. So, in my view, the most basic and important aspect of the culture of the 1960s involved a sustained challenge to constituted authority. And if you want to sum up the culture in the, of the 1960s in one sentence, just like I, 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 you know, if I was forced to sum up American history in one sentence, it would be uh, uh, definitions of, uh, of equality and freedom. If I was forced to sum up the culture of the 60s in one sentence, it would be a sustained challenge to constituted authority. Now, another aspect of 1960s culture, and all of the ones that I'm discussing are interrelated, of course, was anti-materialism. Now, if the 1950s were a decade of consumerism, then the 1960s were a strong antidote to that. The ownership of possessions of things during the 1950s was a source of social status, but the 1960s reversed this. It turned it around. Material goods were now viewed as the root of many of the problems in American society. And what was known as the new left, what I described earlier, uh, was at the forefront of this critique. Now, to be more specific about the new left, in 1962, a group called Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS, was founded in Port Huron, Michigan. Now, who has heard of SDS? Has anybody heard of SDS? Okay, sort of. Okay. I can guarantee you that during the 1960s, everyone had heard of, of SDS. Now, this group, as a, which became infamous in some circles, famous in other circles during the 1960s, depending on your political views, uh, as the most visible representative of the new left, example of the new left during the 1960s, SDS issued a manifesto called the Port Huron Statement, which we uh, read for today, that traced most of America's ills as a society back to its materialism and more specifically to its capitalist system, its obsession with profit. According to the SDS's uh, Port Huron Statement, uh, Americans took jobs that were unfulfilling and even socially destructive because of materialism. Americans sacrificed their spiritual core, their moral core, in pursuit of money 
because of materialism. Americans sought the shallowest and most ephemeral form of status, social status, through their possessions, what they had, because of materialism. And even looking past American individuals to American society uh, as a whole, the obsession of our government and our business, remember the military-industrial complex, with markets and profits drove American imperialism abroad. This was the kind of exploitation of weak nations overseas that, in the view of SDS, would lead to the violent imperialism of Vietnam. Yet another result of materialism. Now, although SDS was not a numerically strong organization, it never had a huge membership, it was educated, articulate, and influential. And in the realm of culture, I've always thought it's more important to be articulate than to be numerous. And by the end of the 1960s, SDS's critique, which it originally articulated in the Port Huron Statement, its critique of American materialism, had filtered into the mainstream American culture, even as SDS itself was self-destructing politically. Another indication of, uh, in my view, why 1960s radicalism's most enduring legacy and most important legacy was not in political change, but in its effect on American culture, cultural change. In other words, the the, the, the way you are dressed, everyone in this classroom, the way you're sitting, what you're wearing, how you're acting, what you're thinking, all of these are results of the 1960s. The politics today, well, there is some obvious overlap with the 1960s, but I think to a large extent what's really affected us today, living in 2008, is the culture of the 1960s. Now, the third aspect of the culture of the 1960s was in the realm of personal behavior, and this is a legacy that we can see around us uh, uh, today in matters of lifestyle, music, dress, sexual behavior, even drug use. The 1960s made it possible to express yourself personally in ways never dreamed of before. Now, the link to the youth and the beat cultures of the 1950s, I think, is obvious here. And... Indeed, it is this aspect of the 1960s culture that is most familiar to us today and most associated with what has become known as the counterculture. Long hair, uh, unconventional, informal, individualistic, even idiosyncratic styles of dress. Uh, Rock music, which had grown from a marginalized form of youth expression in the 1950s, as I described it in the last lecture, to a national cultural force by the 1960s. After all, the Beatles reached more people, and not just young people, than any other musical group in history. It was drug experimentation on an unprecedented scale, uh, uh, including the use of hallucinogenic drugs like LSD as a means of personal self-discovery. There was uninhibited sexual behavior in which sex was demystified and viewed as a natural act that need not be associated with secrecy or with shame. And generally, in the 1960s, there was a relaxed personal style and approach to uh, relationships between people that, to use a word popularized by 1960s culture, sought to avoid hassles or hassling each other. In other words, don't hassle me is probably something that was said over and over again during the 1960s. 
Now, these free styles of personal behavior, of course, are very much with us today, with the exception of the kind of hallucinogenic drug use so common in the 1960s, or at least I hope so. And I think that the moment we knew that the culture of the 1960s, the counterculture of the 1960s, had triumphed was not when college students lived together without being married, let's say, in 1968, but when Reagan Republicans did so in the 80s and the 90s, when free behavior ceased to be a political statement and became simply a personal statement, a cultural statement. When that happened, and it did, the counterculture of the 1960s had become the mainstream culture of the 80s, the 90s, and now the 21st century. Now, the fourth aspect of 1960s culture was moral relativism. And it is what I described at the beginning of this lecture from the uh, standpoint of the negative historical critique of the 1960s. So I'm not going to uh, discuss it further, except to emphasize that in its undistorted form, that is, undistorted by its conservative critics, moral relativism does not excuse immoral behavior per se. It just demands that each individual develop his or her own moral code and follow it. It does not excuse uh, evil or selfishness or hypocrisy. Uh, quite the contrary. Uh, it uh, just affirms the individual's right to decide uh, on his or her own terms how to avoid these unwanted results, free from the demands and the dictates of parents or government or organized religion. Now, what Bill Clinton did to this aspect of 1960s culture is, of course, on his own conscience. And speaking of one's conscience, the fifth aspect of 1960s culture involves what was known as personal authenticity. Personal authenticity. And to illustrate this, let me return to SDS uh, uh, and the New Left, and specifically to the SDS's uh, Port Huron Statement of 1962. They had been told, members of SDS complained in the Port Huron Statement, that America was a land of freedom and equality and democracy. But that is not what they saw, what SDS saw. When they looked at America, they saw the opposite. Racial discrimination, poverty, imperialist exploitation abroad, mass society at home, crushing the autonomy of the individual. In short, SDS saw hypocrisy, in its words, paradoxes afoot in American society. And by challenging America to live up to its professed ideals in equality, freedom, and democracy, SDS was calling for personal authenticity for both the nation and for individuals in America. For putting your money where your mouth is, so to speak, or to use one of the phrases that SDS made famous, putting your body on the line to fight injustice. Talking about injustice to SDS and to the new left generally in America during the 1960s was not enough. To be real, to be personally authentic, to avoid becoming part of the hypocrisy that was endemic in American society. In SDS's view, one had to make an individual commitment against injustice, a personal commitment and a personal sacrifice. And such a personal sacrifice, giving up something, was important not just 
for the particular cause one was fighting for or against, civil rights, the war in Vietnam, uh, civil liberties, but also for the effect that this personal sacrifice had on you as a person. Authenticity, putting your body on the line, then was both a political statement and also a personal statement. Important both for what it did for society and what it did for you. Now, in time, authenticity would morph into the uh, cheap political gestures associated with political correctness. But in the 1960s, it stood as a powerful challenge to individuals to prove themselves by making a personal stand against injustice. And the activities and great personal sacrifices of civil rights workers, Vietnam War protesters, and draft resistors during the 1960s testify to this idea of authenticity uh, and its powerful hold on American culture during this time. Now, the next aspect of 1960s culture is pretty obvious, and that is egalitarianism. Now, every era in American history is, to a greater or lesser extent, egalitarian. But the 1960s are unique, I think, for the ways in which previously marginalized groups, blacks, of course, but also other minorities, uh, Hispanics, also gays, women, uh, began to assert their rights to equality, however one would define equality, all at the same time. Now, the 1960s featured an argument over equality that uh, we have seen in other parts of the 20th century. Did equality mean equality of opportunity, meaning an equal opportunity to become unequal? Or does it mean literal equality, equality of results, of actual condition? And this argument, of course, would not be resolved in this or any other decade, uh, as you uh, may recall, I consider it to be one of the eternal questions of American history. But the emphasis on egalitarianism that characterized the 1960s culture is significant, I think, because it had a carryover effect into other decades, and indeed into our own decade. Now, whether or not the marginalized groups that emerged during the 1960s uh, to demand equality uh, have actually received that equality, uh, uh, whether or not they have or have not, the fact is they did emerge, and after they emerged, there could be no going back. In that sense, the 1960s emphasis on egalitarianism changed the social and political culture of the 1960s, uh, uh, of the United States in the 1960s and beyond permanently, uh, setting new standards for us that, whether or not we reach them, are significant for their very existence. And if you want to know where those standards came out of, these egalitarian standards, they came out of the 1960s. Now, the seventh aspect of 1960s culture that I want to mention is its attack on bureaucracy and on mass society. Now, this emphasis on the individual and not the bureaucracy, the individual and not the organization, uh, and on being treated as an individual, was a direct result of the impersonalization and rationalization and institutionalization of American society that had been occurring throughout the 20th century. And I've referred to this on numerous occasions but which truly accelerated after the start of World War II. Remember, big government, big business, big labor, big universities, big media. Emphasis on the word big. 
And the slogan, do not fold, spindle, or mutilate, which was originally a warning not to tamper with the symbol of modern bureaucracy in the 1960s, the computer card. In the Stone Age of the computers, they actually used punched cards. That's truly the Stone Age. Uh, this slogan, do not fold, spindle, or mutilate, became instead uh, uh, a slogan of the individual, a cry for the individual in mass society for recognition of his individuality. Do not fold, spindle, or mutilate me, so to speak. Now here again, the New Left and SDS can furnish an example, as can their Port Huron Statement. The Port Huron Statement of SDS demanded that individuals, quote, attain determining influences over their circumstances of life. And during the 1960s, the quest for such determining influences, for what SDS called participatory democracy, wherein individuals could control their own political and social lives and not have big organizations or big bureaucracies do this for them. This was a major cultural theme in America, not just within the New Left, but in mainstream American politics as well. Uh, for example, uh, Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, uh, which provided for community action in its programs, whereby the poor themselves, as individuals, could control the institutions created to help them and not be beholden to distant bureaucrats. So this anti-bureaucratic, anti-mass society impulse then was yet another aspect of 1960s culture. And the final aspect of this culture uh, uh, is one that has many implications for American politics uh, today. And that is the emphasis on racial, ethnic, religious or sexual identity as one main way, as the main way of defining somebody in American society. Now, obviously, these identities, you know, racial identity, ethnic identity, religious identity, sexual identity, uh, uh, these identities had been significant before the 1960s, but it was only in the 1960s that these identities came to the forefront. And in a sense, this was ironic. Because in the two decades leading up to the 1960s, the 1940s and 1950s, there had been an emphasis in American national culture on multiple forms of identity. In other words, by the 1940s and during World War II, uh, the idea of one single American identity, a mainstream white Protestant identity, what was known variously as the melting pot, or more ominously, 100% Americanism, uh, had passed out of favor, this one American identity, passed out of favor, replaced by what was known in the 1940s and beyond as pluralism. Now, pluralism, the idea of pluralism, encouraged Americans to define themselves in many ways, thus avoiding the us against them dichotomy that threatened to tear the nation apart, for example, during the Depression, when Americans were, Americans were starkly divided by class, us against them. But this pluralist cultural compromise uh, held only through the 1940s and 1950s. By the 1960s, it had broken down into bipolarity again, us against them. And this time, it was it broke down into what became known as identity politics or identity culture. 
in the identity politics-driven 1960s, Americans began defining themselves first and foremost in terms of their race or their ethnicity or their sexuality, not in terms of a host of identities, no one, no one of which was determinative, as they did under the pluralism of the 1940s and 1950s. And this change to identity culture, identity politics of the 1960s, uh, had great cultural consequences, needless to say, not to mention political consequences that we still live with today. Certainly race relations uh, have been impacted significantly by identity culture. Today, many conservatives point to this cultural shift of the 1960s as the time Americans ceased to have a common identity. Uh, and they look fearfully to a 21st century filled with bipolar divisions, especially racial divisions between us and them. Now, whether or not this will come to pass, this us and them society in the 21st century, is, of course, beyond our purview. Uh, uh, we're talking about history here, after all. Although, perhaps we will uh, take a crack at this question, whether we will become completely bipolar uh, uh, in terms of our, 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 our identities. Uh, maybe we'll take a crack at that at, uh, on the last day of class. But in any case, the 1960s were the decade in which identity culture uh, triumph and celebrate it or not, uh, uh, again, no going back. Uh, in one shape or form, it will be with us for the foreseeable future. So that, in extended summary, if such a thing as an extended summary exists, uh, uh, was the culture of the 1960s. And, in fact, one might call the 1960s a political failure, but a cultural success. Uh, unless you're Kenneth Starr or Rush Limbaugh, of course. And that's why I've spent our time today uh, talking about that culture. But what of politics? Well, I'm going to be spending the next three lectures on the politics uh, of the uh, 1960s, and specifically the civil rights movement and the war in Vietnam. And, of course, you can get the specifics of 1960s politics, the details, let's say, of the Cuban Missile Crisis or the War on Poverty legislative program from the textbook itself. But what I want to do briefly right now is to give you a few broad historical themes of the politics of the 1960s that you can use as you study the specific political events of the decade. Now, the first theme, as much as, uh, which is as much an economic idea as a political idea, is the idea of constant growth of the American economy as the way to finance the major social service expenditures of Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. And you may recall I talked about this concept of growth uh, in a previous lecture in the context of the uh, immediate post-World War II years. Now, by the early 1960s, the American economy had been growing, had been expanding more or less continuously uh, for some 20 years. And Presidents John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson were confident enough that this growth would continue uh, to call for a war on poverty that they knew would be very expensive. Because they thought that economic growth and the revenues that economic growth would bring in would pay for the war on poverty, 
uh, and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society generally, uh, without any major redistributions of income in American society. That is, no uh, new taxes that would take from the middle class. The middle class usually bear the brunt of uh, any tax increase and not the rich. Uh, uh, and redistribute income downward uh, 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 to the poor. Uh, uh, Kennedy specifically, when he asked for the plans for the war on poverty, he never lived to, to, to see it through. Johnson did. But uh, Kennedy, uh, uh, I think, very tellingly told his, uh, uh, the chairman of the, his economic advisors, uh, Walter Heller, that he did not want the word redistribution to appear in the plan at all. That was like the four-letter word of American uh, politics and economics, redistribution. He did not want to see it. He did want to see the word growth, and he did. Because Kennedy and Johnson believed that the war on poverty could be financed without any changes in the capitalist system whatsoever. No state planning, no democratic socialist system of guaranteed jobs or guaranteed incomes. It was sustained growth, or the belief of Kennedy and Johnson in sustained growth, that made, in their eyes, the war on poverty possible. America's middle class would never feel the pinch because there would be no changes in the way the pie, so to speak, would be cut up, since the pie would keep growing bigger and bigger. JFK, and especially LBJ, had a lot invested in the idea of constant growth of the American economy then. Uh, it helped them dodge the question of redistribution, and ultimately, the most basic question of all, what does equality really mean in America? Because an ever-expanding economy meant American leaders, especially in the Democratic Party, didn't have to answer this volatile question of equality. What does it mean? But what if the economy stopped growing or became completely overburdened with a very expensive war? Or both? Well, in future classes, we will see what happened when the American economy stopped growing in the early 1970s, stopped expanding, and difficult cha choices had to be made then, and the effect those difficult choices had on American society, uh, both uh, the middle class and the poor. Now, the second historical theme that I want you to think about is related to growth, uh, and also related to the war on poverty, uh, as well as the eternal question of what is equality. Now, what Lyndon Johnson did not do when he planned the war on poverty, was to provide for direct welfare payments to poor Americans. Nor did Johnson provide for a massive government jobs program, both of which the New Deal had done, incidentally. Johnson saw both these things, incomes, uh, you know, uh, income handouts, what he would call welfare income handouts, uh, and a jobs program, both as demeaning to the pride of the poor, as well as prohibitively expensive. As I just mentioned, he didn't want to tax the middle class or squeeze them in any way, uh, knowing that he'd never get his war on poverty at all if he did that. So instead, Johnson opted for training programs and educational programs that would help the poor help themselves, so to speak, and launch themselves upward into what would hopefully be a growing American economy. That was the premise behind Johnson's war on poverty. He would give them an opportunity then. Uh, 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 and note that one of the uh, great uh, major legislative enactments of the War on Poverty is called the Economic Opportunity Act of 1964. But Johnson would not give them a guaranteed result. And this, I think, is significant. 
Because it means that, or it meant, that even in the midst of one of the most politically liberal decades in our nation's history, one of the most politically liberal presidents in our nation's history was reluctant to make a strong stand in favor of an expanded definition of equality in American society, but instead trim around the edges of that definition without making wholesale changes. This decision, as was the case with uh, Johnson's reliance on economic growth to finance the war on poverty that I just referred to a moment ago, would have long-term implications for the limits of systemic change in American institutions. Just how far Americans were willing to go to provide for equality in their society. And the final general political theme that you should be thinking about as you think about the 1960s is an old friend of ours, so to speak. And that involves the familiar issue of the extent of federal government power in American political and economic life uh, 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 that arose throughout the 20th century in American history. Uh, it rose, arose in connection with progressivism, uh, with World War I, World War II, the New Deal. The 1960s marked the greatest intrusion of federal government power into the lives of individual American citizens in the nation's history through the great society programs of Lyndon Johnson, through civil rights legislation that we'll be talking about in future lectures, Supreme Court decisions, uh, the growth of the federal uh, administrative bureaucracy, the expansion of executive power, all these things meant that the federal government was going to be intruding into Americans' lives in the 1960s more than at any other time in our history. And these intrusions raised the question, and not surprisingly it was conservative Republicans and Southern Democrats who were raising it, the question of the limits of government power in American politics and social life, and especially the economy, that would concern Americans well beyond the 1960s. This question of the extent of government power, federal government power, would ultimately lead to a major realignment in American political life and rejuvenate the conservative movement in America and rejuvenate the Republican Party in America, which had, in the early 60s, uh, both appeared to be moribund, to be dead, as well as leading to a quarter century, almost a quarter century, of Republican control of the White House. So the issue of the limits of federal government power, uh, uh, which is, of course, of importance uh, in any historical era, is especially important in the era of the 1960s. And it bears watching as we think about the 1960s. Eventually, this question, or the answer to it, would change America, although not in a way that would have pleased Lyndon Johnson. So, having explored the cultural aspects of the 1960s and some of its political themes in a general fashion, we're now ready to get down to specifics, and we will in the next lecture as we talk about one of the defining, influ defining influences and defining impulses in the decade that defined us, the civil rights movement.